We've been wrestling through the tough questions, as uh, Sheldon has reminded us and prayed for us. This morning's is a doozy, and it's, uh, it's one that merits some prayerful consideration. The question is not really, is Christianity violent? Uh, though on the surface, we'd have to answer at least part of that question by saying, yes, Christianity has been violent. Wherever human beings bear an allegiance, whether it's to God in Christ or something else, wherever there is human sinfulness and fallenness, there can be violence. And so part of the answer begins by just saying yes. But there are deeper questions, questions about the character of God himself, questions about the scriptures that we hold to be sacred. So I thought I'd start just with a kind of exercise in imagination. Join me on this. My wife, Karina, who is watching with many of you this morning, is as kind and gentle and compassionate a person as you would ever want to meet. Uh, She's also profoundly wise. She's been married to me for 27 years. (laughs) But, But imagine this story, if you will. Suppose I'm walking along a downtown street in a busy day, traffic filled street. I see my wife on the other side of the road, but because of all the traffic noise, despite my waving and my shouting, she cannot hear me. So I just, I follow her on the opposite side of the street, hoping eventually to get to a crosswalk where I can join her over on the other side. As we approach the intersection, I see her coming closer and closer to a wheelchair-bound panhandler on the side of the street, holding in one hand a paper cup collecting donations and clinging in the other hand to a baseball cap, likely one of his, his few real possessions in the world. Knowing how compassionate my wife is, as she slows down and approaches him, I imagine that probably she's going to stop and say a kind word, maybe even put a 5 or a $10 bill into his cup. But suppose instead, instead of compassion, my lovely wife begins screaming at the top of her lungs, knocks over his donation can, rips away his baseball cap, kicks over his wheelchair, and then goes tearing off down the street. Now witnessing that, I mean, it it would horrify me. It would horrify the people who saw it. But without without a chance to be able to talk to my wife, to understand what it is that I have just seen, how would I account for it? Now that, that situation, imaginary as it is, is just a little bit like the predicament that followers of Jesus have when they leaf through the pages of the Old Testament and see God seeming to act in capricious and violent, and brutal ways. Here's our dilemma, isn't it? Christians, we've always affirmed that Jesus Christ, especially Jesus Christ crucified, is the fullest, most complete revelation of who God is and what God is like. From him, we learn that God's abiding nature is love, the kind of self-sacrificial love that it took to become human, and then having become human, to offer himself up for us, he says, when we were still his enemies. But then what are we to think when we find God acting in surprisingly unchristlike ways, particularly in the Old Testament, commanding genocide, the indiscriminate killing of both the righteous and the unrighteous, the slaughter of children and and innocent women. Now, that leaves us with a a predicament, and there have been lots of options suggested for how we respond. One option is simply to reject all the passages that depict God in violent ways. It solves the dilemma. But it kind of conflicts with the teaching of Jesus himself, who had tremendous admiration for God's word, for the Old Testament, who affirmed that that the Old Testament is the inspired word of God. There was an effort early on in church history, if you want to have a look at it later this afternoon, it it was uh, started by a founder named Marcion. And the Marcionite heresy suggested that the God of the Old Testament was actually a completely different God than the God of the New Testament. And so he jettisoned the bulk of the Bible, the entire Old Testament, anything in the New Testament that referenced the Old Testament, 
which means the Gospels are all out. Most of the epistles are all out. You're left with a very small core. You cannot strip the Old Testament out of the New and have anything meaningful left. So that option just of rejecting all the passages, it it probably is not a viable one. Here's another option. We simply accept that God's ways are unfathomable by the human mind. That God is not accountable to any human understanding of morality. That he is at one and the same time both loving and ferocious. That he is filled with wrath and with mercy. That he's governed by compassion, yes, but also holy anger. He can pour out righteous fury on the world, destroying every man, woman, and child. But he can also pour out his own life for the world. We can say that. But it leaves us still in a tricky spot. Because we cannot deny that God appears sometimes in the Old Testament as violent and cruel. Yes, the world is in desperate need of justice. Yes, there are evils in the world that have been met with force in order to prevail. But that does not explain everything that we see. In the same way, that it would be, it would be deeply unfaithful for me, the question, the character of my wife, who I've known for 27 years, it seems unfaithful for us not to question the character of God when it doesn't line up with what we see in Jesus. In fact, what we're going to see a little bit later is that the New Testament presents the, the crucified Jesus, not just Jesus, but Jesus on the cross presents him as not just one among a whole bunch of other ideas of what God is like, but as the defining, as the ultimate revelation, the one that supersedes all others. It leaves us with with one possibility, at least, and this is the one we're going to spend some time exploring, that if we believe that Jesus fully reveals what God is like, then maybe we need to suspect that there's something else going on. Something else going on when when God appears to be acting in a way that is malicious, not just violent, but capricious. And until we have the opportunity to sit down with God face to face, maybe maybe we have to use an effort of imagination or intuition or introspection, or prayerful interpretation to understand what that something else may be. And it's not going to be easy. So just as we dig into that, I'd like to pause again and pray. Uh, As we do that, I want to acknowledge that this is not the sermon I had planned to give up until about Friday night this week. And I realized I had spent all of my time marshalling defenses as if God needed me somehow to come to his aid. And uh, in the end, I decided I just didn't want to do that. I want to be able to celebrate the God that we know in Christ and then figure out what it is that we take from the passages of Scripture that don't seem to line up. So I'd love it if you would pray for me as we figure out how we're going to track through this together. Heavenly Father, We want to commit ourselves to you. We want to come before you humbly and openly and honestly and admit that even though we we sit under your word and acknowledge it as the supreme revelation of who you are, that even your word sits under the revelation of Jesus himself. So Jesus, join us in this conversation. The same spirit that was at work in those authors long ago as they as they first wrote down the words of Scripture, may you be at work in the room today and and in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your notes, uh, those of you in the room or those of you online, uh, we want to begin by at least acknowledging and naming 
the elephant in the room. We believe that God is altogether beautiful and loving and compassionate and just, and it's well-founded, and the Bible generally portrays God in this way. We believe that, that God is revealed in Jesus. But what we tend to ignore is that there are these portraits in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a few of them. Uh, that we also confess are inspired, that are God-breathed, but are most definitely not beautiful or loving or compassionate or just. And so one of the most vicious critics of Christianity, of religion as a whole in the 20th century, a man named Richard Dawkins wrote this, and you have the quote in your notes. It's hard to listen to, but listen to it just the same. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, Bully. Tell us how you really feel. But at the very least, even though it it may sound irreverent to say it, I think it's important that we be able at least to say that there are some portraits of God in the Old Testament that are frankly really ugly. This is not just God as the divine warrior coming to the aid of his people. Not just God overthrowing the forces of evil in the name of good. But this is God ordering his people to mercilessly annihilate every member to do genocide in his name. Except except in the case of the Midianites, except for the virgin girls who Israelite soldiers were allowed to keep as the spoils of war. This is God in Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 and 3, who who tells Moses to destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan totally, to show them no mercy, make no treaty with them. At another point, he's depicted as telling Moses that he is to wipe out all the tribes, and he lists them by name. Do not keep anything alive that breathes, he says. And versions or variations of that command appear 37 different times in the Old Testament. Completely destroy them. Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. The list goes on. King David, the most loved and revered monarch in, in the history of the Old Testament, is revered... Because he didn't just kill thousands like Saul did, but he killed tens of thousands in sanctioned, in military campaigns that are sanctioned by God. He's celebrated in the Bible saying it was his practice, 1 Samuel 27, never to leave a man or a woman alive. The problem gets a little bit deeper though, because not only does God command violence in the Old Testament, Sometimes he's portrayed as actively engaging in it. Most famous example, obviously, is the world flood, the Genesis flood, that wiped out every living thing on the face of the earth except for a few humans and animals that found refuge on the ark. Only slightly less famous is God's ferocious rain of fire that incinerates the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are portraits of God in the Bible that that depict him as as capricious in his violence. The most famous example is a devoted servant, a righteous man, who's named Uzzah. This is in 2 Samuel 6, if you care to look it up. Uzzah, this poor fellow, is struck dead simply because he touched the ark of God in an attempt to keep it from falling off a cart while it was being transported. That put such a fright into David that he ordered the ark to be removed from the city. He didn't want it anywhere near people. Some of the most brutal of violence ascribed to God 
are the accounts of him using other nations to bring judgment on his own chosen, loved people. For example, Babylon is planning an attack on Israel. God is depicted as saying to his people, this is in Ezekiel 21, I am against you. I will draw my sword from its sheath. I will cut you off, both the righteous and the unrighteous, both the righteous and the wicked. The indiscriminate killing of those who are good and aligned with God and those who are rebellious and opposed to him. My sword will be unsheathed against everyone from the south to the north. Other depictions are even more gruesome. Jeremiah 13 depicts God declaring that mercy and compassion... These attributes that we believe are so central to his character, mercy and compassion, will not influence him. I will smash them one against the other, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. And he goes on to say to the Israelite women that I will pull your skirts up over your faces. A euphemism for rape. Other passages depict God declaring that as judgment for Israelite sin, parents would witness their babies dashed to the ground. Pregnant women would have babies ripped from their wombs, Hosea 13. And maybe in what's the grisliest of all the Old Testament portraits of violence, God causing parents to eat their children and children to eat their parents. Ezekiel 5. There you have it, the ugly elephant in the room. And not knowing what else to do, what most Christians do is go on believing that God is beautiful and do their best to ignore everything that they read that's ugly. And so whether we we realize it consciously or not, we subject the Bible to a kind of cleansing. And we, we create for ourselves a version of the Bible, like the Bible light, that has the stuff that we believe and receive. And then it has the stuff that we politely ignore. And I'm going to tell you why I don't think that's helpful. Among other things, even if we rarely think about them, we know they're there, Right? kind of like the awkward relative who never gets invited anymore, but we know they're there. And they have a way of corrupting our mental image of God. So we think like a Star Wars character. He has a dark side. And until we could find a way of of reconciling those pictures of God with the supreme revelation of who God is in Jesus... I think we're going to have a disjointed image of who God is, and we're not going to be able to love as fully as God desires to be loved. Maybe just as important, studies have shown again and again and again that violent depictions of God in literature, particularly in literature that is marked as sacred, inclines people towards greater violence in the world. And we know these passages have been the source of violence in history. We know, too, they're great ammunition for critics of the Bible. So it's important that we figure out how to respond. As difficult as these things are, if we confess Jesus as Lord, I think we're obligated to confess all of them, together with the entire Bible, as being something that is God-breathed. But at the same time, if we confess that Jesus is Lord, we also should feel obliged to insist that there's something else going on here. There's something else going on when the authors of the Bible ascribe these kind of attributes, these motives to God, because they contradict with Jesus' cross-oriented life. And Whatever this something else might be, It must at least clarify how what's going on there lines up with the self-sacrificial God that is revealed in Jesus at the cross. 
What I'd love to do, oh, actually, what I'd love to do first is have a drink of that water. Thank you so much. <laughs> what I'd like to do is just is pause here in this part of the message. <clears throat> Clear my throat. <laughs> And offer you a word of advice. Uh, this isn't original. This is actually very old advice. This comes from a thinker in the life of the early church, a man named Oregon. Oregon taught that when we come across a biblical passage that seems unworthy of God, what we need to do is pause, humble ourselves before God, and ask God through His Spirit to reveal for us the deeper meaning in that passage. The meaning that is worthy of God. He sometimes talked about this as the treasure buried beneath the depth of a passage. And Origen believed that God intentionally buried treasures beneath the ugly, unworthy surface meaning of a lot of passages in order to force people to wrestle with Scripture to become dependent on the Spirit of God. And like many, like most of Christian thinkers, for the first three or four hundred years in church history, Oregon considered that these violent portraits of God in the Old Testament were unworthy of him. Yet they didn't feel free to dismiss them, because they firmly believed, as we do, that all Scripture was inspired by God. So they set out trying to figure out what else could be going on. If Scripture represents God's character or His activity in ways that are inconsistent with what we know and what's revealed in Jesus, then we pause and we wait on the Holy Spirit and we contemplate what that something else might be. And I encourage you, not just this morning, but as you work this out in your small groups, to humble yourself and to ask the Spirit of God to, to somehow illuminate your mind and be assured that Jesus was telling the truth when he said that all Scripture was inspired by God for the purpose of pointing to Him. The Bible we have is the Bible God wanted us to have. We just need the ability to see it. And as we're about to see, the key that opens it up, is Jesus himself. So what I'd like to do is sort of build a puzzle with you. I'm not sure how you do puzzles in your house, but we do it first by laying out all the pieces and then building the four edges. You do that, you find the corner piece, that's like a triumph. Like, we're halfway there, i got a corner. But you do the four edges and then you fill in the middle. So I want to say something about the four edges of this puzzle. And all of them within the language of the whole counsel of God. Meaning that we believe the whole thing is God-breathed. But let me say four things, four sides to the puzzle. First, the Bible that you hold in your hands, whether it's a book or a device, is not a product of divine dictation. That the authors of the Bible didn't go into sort of semi-conscious, dreamlike states and write, unconscious of what it is they're writing, words that are funneled through them. They were not typewriters. Throughout church history, theologians have assumed that God's breathing out of Scripture is conditioned through the medium that He breathes through. And we acknowledge, and they acknowledge, that He didn't override the personalities and the styles and the cultures or the intellectual capabilities of the authors of Scripture that he breathed through. That the writings of the Bible reflect the distinctive traits of the human authors who recorded them. There's a human emotion in there. The Psalms are filled with it. Anger and jealousy and ecstasy and despair. God's breathing out of Scripture is not a unilateral activity. He allowed the distinctive traits of those who are writing 
to condition what he's breathing into them. And as a part, as a result of that, Scripture is often more like a dialogue than it is a unilateral conversation. So is it so hard to imagine that in that dialogue, that the further back in history we go, in the story of God's people in the Old Testament, in a history we know to be increasingly pagan and violent, that that conversation looks more and more violent. That's the first side of the puzzle. Here's the second. This is another ancient and very widely shared conviction. And These are things that maybe you're hearing for the first time, but they're not made up. They're not a convenient cheat to try and get through a tough question. This ancient, widely shared conviction is that there is a discernible progress in the way that God reveals himself over time in the biblical story. Scripture is a progressive revelation. Early on, the thinking goes, God has to relate to a people living in a world that is primitive and barbaric and idolatrous and pagan and violent motives in these not unilateral, but bilateral conversations recorded in Scripture are often attributed to God, even as he tries and tries to inject more and more of his true nature into the minds of his people. And gradually, even if it happens unevenly, God's people develop the capacity to receive revelations of what he's like with greater and greater clarity. The process finally culminates in the clearest revelation we have of Jesus, of God, which is Jesus himself. Let me give you some examples just to make it sound real for you. For example, when God first speaks to a pagan world, the first thing he does is he cuts them off from their paganism, from their worship of idols. No more idol worship. There is only one God. Only one true living God, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He cut them off from the worship of idols, but he didn't cut them off yet from sacrifices. We learn later on that God actually doesn't desire animal sacrifices at all. But maybe, I don't know, maybe his people were too spiritually immature to abandon the whole thing at once. And so that practice is tolerated for a time. And eventually it too is revealed to be out of step with the character of God. Similarly, one of the most disturbing passages of the Old Testament is Abraham being commanded to take his son Isaac up into an altar and sacrifice him to God. And we read it as a test of obedience, and clearly it is. I mean, what a tremendous statement of obedience it would take to do that. But realize that in a world where Human sacrifice, particularly child sacrifice, was not just uncommon but expected. It's not as rare a thing as we might imagine. That the other key understanding of what happened in the sparing of Isaac was God saying, in a further revelation of who he is, no more human sacrifices. This is not in keeping with my character or what it means to love, worship, and follow me. God has always revealed his true character as much as is possible, while at the same time kind of stooping down to accommodate the fallen, the the culturally conditioned state of his people. So is it so hard to imagine that in his stooping low, in his bowing down, that people are still allowed to see him like people saw all the gods, as some sort of ancient warrior deity, until he could progressively influence them to the point where they would be capable of receiving the truth, which is that he is radically unlike all of those other violent gods. What he's really at war with is a war going on in the spiritual realm against evil, a cosmic battle. One that doesn't take place on human battlefields. Christian theologians, Christian theologians through the centuries have always applied this understanding of progressive revelation to their, to their working out 
of the puzzling things in the Bible, especially in, in the early centuries. But you know, when it comes to the question of violence, they stopped doing it completely in the 5th century. And those concepts that are applied so freely everywhere else aren't applied to the, the violence of the Old Testament. And I'll tell you why. This is the third side of the puzzle. Because very early on in the life of the church, the Bible was co-opted for the purpose of empire building. See, prior to that time, the first 300 years, Christians took very seriously Jesus' call to refrain from violence, to love and to serve their enemies. But then something happened. It happened in the 4th century. A Roman empire, a Roman emperor, sorry, a man named Constantine, has this vision just before he goes into a major battle. The vision convinced him that his army would defeat their foes if they fought under the banner of Jesus. This was the first, unfortunately not the last, but the first time the name of Jesus Christ is associated with political and military violence. And Constantine achieved a spectacular victory. And since in the world, still largely pagan, people assumed that military victory always goes to the army with the stronger God, Constantine pledged his allegiance to Jesus. But not the Jesus of the New Testament. Not a sacrificial loving Savior, but Jesus envisioned like one of the other pagan warrior gods. In the year 313, Constantine legalized Christianity, and he began to shower the church with wealth and power. And in less than a century, the church went from being a persecuted minority to the official religion of the empire it was actually illegal not to be Christian. And the thing is, if you're going to run an empire, you've got to be willing to use the sword. So in the 4th and 5th centuries, Christian theologians began to look for creative and clever ways to justify violence. Despite the fact that they had to ignore clear teachings from Jesus and, and Paul, which suggested the contrary. And whereas the church in, in the first 300 years of its life believed that it was called to love and to serve the world by carrying the cross. The politically empowered church of the 4th and 5th centuries believed it was called to conquer the world for Christ, wielding the sword as necessary. The persecuted church becomes the persecuted church, the church triumphant. It now has the power to persecute heretics and unbelievers. The Roman Empire becomes the Holy Roman Empire. And Christ is its triumphant warrior empire. Christendom is born. And while this, this religion has thankfully been dying for the past few hundred years, it has been the dominant face of the church for 15 centuries. It's no wonder we can't answer that question, is Christianity violent, without at least saying yes to the Crusades and the Inquisition, to colonization, to residential schooling, and a host of other forced conversions. In order to do this, Christendom, instead of trying to reconcile the Old Testament passages of God with Jesus, embraced them and contorted the image of Jesus to do so. And the reason is obvious. If you have to inspire Christians to pick up a sword and slay their enemies on behalf of the empire, knowing that God is a warrior God and he's on your side certainly helps the cause. And that's the primary role that these passages have played ever since. That's the third side of the puzzle. Here's the fourth side. We believe that the Scripture is God-breathed. It says that about itself. That the Scripture is inspired. But what does that mean? We throw that around as a test of orthodoxy. Like, unless you can say it, you're not one of us, not fully one of us. But what does it mean? 
the idea that the Bible is inspired. There are those who, who would come to every verse in the Bible and say, the fact that it's inspired means that it is definitive and authoritative in the same way. It's called the flat view of the Bible. Everything is placed on the same level. And what you're left with is kind of a montage or a mosaic where the pieces don't line up neatly. Part of the God that these Christians will embrace is Christ-like. But other parts are vengeful and, and capricious and, and capable of doing horrible things. Like commanding genocide. You realize every recorded genocide in the history of the world has been perpetrated by or in the name of Christ? We might say, well, these are fallen interpretations, and clearly they are. They might not have been true followers of Jesus, and clearly they weren't. But somehow they found warrant to do it and, and found doing it in the name of Jesus to be helpful in the cause. From the Holocaust through the genocide of the Armenians, through Rwanda, and on it goes. Now I understand, I, I, I do, because the logic behind this approach to the Bible is something that I was raised in. But I want you to understand why in some ways it's insufficient. All scripture is inspired by God. But the Bible itself tells us to base our ultimate understanding of God on Jesus himself. Jesus himself taught that scripture is to be interpreted in a way that points to him. So nothing in scripture should be interpreted in a way that contradicts or competes with that definitive relation of God. Listen carefully. You have this in your notes. We'll put it on the screen. This is what the author of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, says about the revelation of God in Christ. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. One of my favorite writers, uh, a Baptist from, uh, from Western Canada, Mark Buchanan, really gets the gist of the passage. When he says this, it, it draws this vivid contrast between the past and the present, between the Old Testament and the New. And in every way, Jesus is superior to whoever or whatever has come before him. The past is a mere shadow of the present reality and glory of Christ. I hope you have the passage open, because let's just pick at it a little bit. The author says that all those previous revelations came in various ways. You see where it says that? In various ways. Uh, the word behind that is the word polymeros, which, which is usually translated glimpses of truth. In the past, we had these glimpses of truth. But in contrast, the sun is the full radiance of God's glory. In other words, when God shines, it looks like Jesus. And so insofar as, as the Old Testament writers caught glimpses of the truth, it's because they were seeing the sun that we see in Jesus. But they also had clouds. Clouds that impaired and obstructed their vision. When people in the past got glimpses of the truth, they were seeing him, Jesus. Jesus himself claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. You know, actually the Greek word for truth, sorry to do this again, but... I did spend all that money learning Greek. The Greek word for truth is aletheia, which literally means uncovered or unveiled. These things that were clouded and covered, where you got only glimpses in the past, were now fully unveiled in Jesus. He is the truth. Jesus is what God looks like when there are no clouds blocking our vision. 
That's why the book of Hebrews goes on to say that the Son is the one and only exact representation of God's very being, of his essence. Jesus is the perfect revelation. You have this in your notes. The perfect revelation of everything that makes God, God. Or as C.S. Lewis once said famously, Jesus is what God wanted most to say to us. Jesus must be the criterion that we use to assess all of the previous glimpses of the truth and figure out to what extent we're seeing clouds. Now please, please understand, I'm not suggesting we use Jesus as the criterion for assessing whether or not the Old Testament passages were inspired or not. They're all inspired. God was working through the life of his people. But as we're going to explain in just a minute, saying that a passage is divinely inspired doesn't mean that it somehow reflects an unclouded vision of God. To say that the Bible's inspired doesn't mean that every statement, every verse is equal or equally applicable. What I'm suggesting, and now we're going to get to the middle of the puzzle, is that we read the Bible backwards. Reading backwards. Uh, It was the the famous title of a book by one of our most prodigious New Testament scholars, a man named Richard Hayes, that Jesus is the lens through which we must read the violent passages in the Old Testament and our own violent history as the church. A lot of Christians, they like to quote from the Bible like they're grabbing recipes out of a book. The thing about a recipe book, though, is it doesn't really matter when you turn to a particular page and rip out a recipe and use it, where in the order of the book you got it from. Each page sort of stands on its own. A lot of Christians use the Bible that way. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And that may sound pious, but it really is problematic because the Bible is not a recipe book. The Bible is a story. And what goes on in Acts 1 and Acts 2 is not the same as what goes on in Acts 3 and Acts 4. Particularly when there is this surprise ending that comes in the latter Acts. That surprise reframes everything. So just because God said it doesn't settle it. For the meaning of what God said can change depending on whether it's heard from the perspective of those first hearing it hundreds of years ago, or those looking back through what happened in Act 4, the great revelation of God through the crucifixion. So here's what I want to suggest to you, and I'm going to try and make the case for this in the three or four hours we have left. (laughs) Some more water. I want you to hear me out on this because uh, I know for, for a lot of us this is kind of new teaching. But if the cross reveals what God is truly like, it reveals what God has always been like. It's not as if God suddenly acquired a loving character when Jesus came to the earth and offered up his life. The cross reveals what God has always been like. He's always had the same character as what we see in Jesus. If that's the case, doesn't it make sense to read Scripture expecting to find that character? And in the same way that God takes on human appearance and then takes on the full weight, the the muck and mire and just the despicableness of human sin, takes all of it, becomes that takes it to the cross and wears it, hangs it, dies for it, emerges victorious. We'll get to that. That's the surprise ending. If that's the case, would it not also make sense that God mirrors the violence going on in the world in the Old Testament? In the same way that he's disfigured on the cross, that he he could allow his own good nature disfigured in a kind of, one writer called it like a literary crucifix. People got it wrong. 
And it was going to take them a while in order to convince them that they got it wrong, but eventually they got it right. Jesus presents himself as the one person who all the previous revelations are about. And I, I know that, that there's a place where we want to push back. And so let me, let me just try and make the case a little bit stronger. Jesus understands that the Old Testament is a revelation of God, one that points to him. It's sacred. But he also placed himself above it. He says, confronting the Pharisees, this is in John chapter 5, he says, you study the scriptures, you study them diligently, because you think that in them you possess eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And then a moment later, he adds, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For in a way, he's writing about me. Jesus is the key that unlocks the the revelatory, the, the revelation content of every passage of Scripture. And so we we could say, even though it's hard to say, it's important, that the central subject matter of the Old Testament, as well as its goal and fulfillment, is Jesus. That he's the looking glass through which all Scripture must be read. One of the most striking illustrations of that idea is the way that Jesus himself reinterprets or even overturns passages of the Old Testament. Correcting, I think, not God, but the way that God allowed human authors for a time to to get it in only a cloudy way. Think about how often in the Gospels In the Sermon on the Mount, we spent a whole year on the Sermon on the Mount, it felt like, where Jesus starts saying, you have heard it said, that's the Old Testament, but I say to you, but, saying that you're about to get it in a new way, without the clouds in front of it, the truth unveiled. You've heard it said, people taught that people were that we get defiled when we eat things that are unclean. All those dietary laws. We don't follow those dietary laws anymore. Whether we realize it or not, we have overturned that part of the Old Testament. Why? Because we follow Jesus who himself overturned it. He taught, Mark 7, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile them. It's what proceeds from inside that makes you unclean. And saying that, he makes all food clean. The Old Testament stipulated that people couldn't engage in any activity, any work on the Sabbath. A person was to be stoned to death for simply picking up sticks for a fire or lighting a candle on the Sabbath. Jesus displays a much more humane, relaxed attitude towards the Sabbath. He even defends his disciples when they break the Sabbath law by gathering food on that day. Think about that the next time you go out for dinner on a Sunday. When confronted with a woman who was found guilty of adultery, Jesus completely subverts the Old Testament law that demanded that she be stoned. Indeed, he subverts all the Old Testament laws that require execution by making it clear that only a sinless person would be justified in carrying out an execution in God's name. Maybe the most astonishing and direct example of Jesus doing this, though, is when he repudiates the Old Testament law of retaliation. The the lex talionis, the, the law of vengeance. According to that law, found in at least three places in the Old Testament, the severity of a person's punishment is dictated by the severity of their crime. An eye for an eye... A tooth for the tooth. And yet Jesus is fearless in setting that law aside. If someone slaps you on the right side of the cheek, turn the other cheek towards them as well. He goes on to tell them to bless their enemies. Why? So that you may be found to be children of your Father in heaven. 
what he's really doing is setting aside the whole idea of redemptive violence. That somehow violence is a tool that redeems. An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. How can he say that? It, it doesn't make any sense without the cross. And when we see that the cross is the centerpiece of everything, we begin to see what else could be going on in these despicable, violent portraits that are ascribed to God. You find some language in your notes that they wanted to give to you to maybe think through and work through in your small groups this week. There is a cruciform through line that can be traced in the Bible. There are two words that you may have never heard of and you certainly never heard of them together. This is not my phrase. It belongs to a, a pastor and a theologian, a man named Greg Boyd. A through line. For those of you in drama school, you know the through line is the plot point that runs right through a play or a movie, or, or a, a work of literature, a song, the plot point that runs all the way through from the beginning to the end. That's the through line. Cruciform means in the shape of a cross, reflecting the self-sacrificial character of the cross. There is a cruciform through line that runs all the way through the Bible. The most beautiful message of the Bible from beginning to end is the one that comes in 1 John 4. That God is love. That would have been so unexpected, so amazing, so life-changing and life-challenging that it took centuries for God's people to hear it fully. And a lot of times it was cloudy. God is love. Well, most Christians today believe that most of us still struggle with what it means. It's been that way through all of history. Much of the problem goes back to St. Augustine. Augustine, arguably the most important theologian outside of the Apostle Paul in the history of the church. Augustine believed that God is love. Augustine even argued that we should interpret the whole Bible with the rule of love, meaning that anything in the Bible that is not consistent with the love of God should be interpreted with great care. To that extent, he was, he was headed in the right direction. Unfortunately, he defined love as only an inner attitude, an emotion. Uh, it had nothing to do with how we treated people. And so he went on to say that that a Christian could imprison, torture, and if necessary, execute heretics in the name of love. Which kind of makes you wonder if, if it's loving for Christians to imprison, torture, and kill people with whom we disagree, what does it look like to be unloving towards them? When you get to the New Testament, there's no more ambiguity about the meaning of love. There's no abstract definitions Instead, it just points us to the supreme illustration of what God is love really means. This is how we know what love is, John writes, 1 John 3.16, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The love that characterizes the nature of God that we are to extend to others looks like a cross, not like a sword. Let's return to the puzzle again. Let's put those last few pieces in together. And you finally realize you're at the end and there's just a few holes yet to be plugged. Let's put it all together. How is it that the macabre portraits of God, God commanding his people to mercilessly engage in genocide, how is it that they point to a nonviolent, self-sacrificial God whose love is revealed supremely in the cross? Until we, 
Until we trust that God is exactly as He's revealed Himself to be on the cross. It cannot, it will not function as the defining revelation, as the most majestic, unsurpassed sign of who God is. Think of it like this. We, we talked about how the Old Testament sometimes is a shadow of the reality we're given in Christ. That shadow will point you to the reality but only if you remember that it's just a shadow. If instead you mistake the shadow for the reality, it can't point you anywhere. You're just there in darkness. I encourage you, I I, I implore you to trust that the cross reveals the fullness of what God is like. And when you do that, you'll discover how everything else Everything in the Old Testament that on the surface looks like it conflicts with God, like the crucified Christ, including its most violent depictions, is only just a shadow that points to Jesus. That God stoops, that He bends, that He accommodates even the distorted human understanding of His own nature. Allows His beautiful character to be maligned by the ugly sinfulness of his people, takes on a surface appearance that mirrors the sin just as he does on the cross. That God, out of his love, is stooping to bear the sin of his people, taking on a sinful appearance. It's true of the violence of the Old Testament. It's supremely true of the violence of the cross in the New when you interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, violence becomes both beautiful and revolting in the same way that the cross itself is both beautiful and revolting. The violence of the Old Testament and the violence of the New all get redeemed. All the violence attributed to God falls on his shoulders, actually, at that one moment in history. And then the cross itself, the the symbol of humanity's very worst, violent, repugnant, and cruel, the cross itself becomes the symbol of the great victory over darkness, both spiritual and physical, over violence and death, the true character of God is finally revealed and love wins. Just a minute, we're going to invite the worship team to come and, and bring our service to a close. I, I know it's, it's been a lot. It's been an awful lot. Let me just give you one closing word of encouragement as you Go to talk about these things in your small groups this week. My hope, my prayer for myself, for you, for all of us is that you can dare to trust completely that God is to the very core of His being just as beautiful as He's revealed to be on the cross. And if you're struggling to believe in a God who you think has a dark side, you find yourself finally thinking that the cross can completely define your conception of who He is, that it's not a cheat, that it's not too good to be true, that you can embrace it as good news, and that the truth is, however beautiful you envision God to be, He is infinitely more beautiful even than that. And when you come to those ugly portraits of God in the Bible, remind yourself that the ugliness is a reflection of the same ugliness and sin that Jesus bore on the cross. One of the most powerful ways to do this is just to ask the Spirit of God to help you more completely imagine the one who gave his life for you. So I'd like to pray the benediction over you now. And it is this, that the Spirit remove the veil over our minds 
so that all of us, using the beautiful language of God's Word, all of us with unveiled faces can see the glory of the Lord as reflected to us. And that as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we are transformed into the same image from one degree to another in ever-increasing glory. For this comes from the Lord through His Spirit to God's people. May it come to you now. And may God bless you as you receive it.